Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. You know, one of the phrases that we have heard incessantly in the news on social media and in just general conversations over the past year and a half is that phrase, new normal. We've heard it so often and so much that we're kind of over it and we just kind of tune it out. You know, some of us by nature resist anything new, like the reporter who was interviewing a man celebrating his 100th birthday for a story for the local paper. The reporter said, over the last hundred years, I bet you've seen a lot of changes, sir. The centenarian said, yes, sir, and I've been against every one of them. Some of us are thinking, I don't want a new normal. I like my old normal, and I want it back. In the 1997 movie, As Good As It Gets, actress Helen Hunt plays a restaurant server who has a love-hate relationship with one of her frequent customers, played by Jack Nicholson. He's kind and generous to her and her son who has a serious illness, but he's also agoraphobic, obsessive, compulsive, and crudely offensive to others. In desperation, Helen finally cries to her mother, I just want a normal boyfriend. Oh, her mother responds in empathy. Everybody wants one of those. There's no such thing, dear. Normal is a medium-sized city in the state of Illinois also where Pastor Eddie Schmidt is from. Normal, as one of my friends from Ohio like to say, is a setting on a dryer. But in terms of the human condition, normal is what everything appears to be until you get to know the real story. You see, the two main problems with chasing normal are these. Number one, that normal actually exists among fallen humanity. And number two, that it was working well for us before whatever came along to disrupt it. So let me give you a sobering heads up on normal. Things never go back to whatever it is that we once considered normal. Whether it's an historic event that affects all the world like a global pandemic, or whether it's just something that affects my personal life, a baby that's born, a marriage that's entered, a new job that's started, a divorce that brings an ending, or a death to mourn. All of those things, all of those major events in my life change what normal is. And if I wait for things to go back to normal, I'm going to be waiting for a very long time because they never will. More importantly, though, God never seems to be concerned about going back to what we think is normal. God never calls people to go back to the way things used to be. On the contrary, the God of the Bible is the one who seems to be three to four steps ahead and waiting for us to catch up to Him. C.S. Lewis once said that the one prayer God never answers is the prayer of Encore. Do it again, God, just like you did it before. You see, we want a repeat of the same experience, of that precious moment, of that treasured time, of that sacred place. And God never does because God isn't concerned with going back. God is always trying to move us ahead because God isn't done yet. If you're stuck in 
preservation of the past mode, then you're going to miss God's restoration future movement. That's why we frequently say around journey, there's always a next step to take in following Jesus. Now, while God doesn't always do the same kind of work, He always works in the same kinds of ways. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't make any sense, Pastor John. How can God always work in the same kinds of ways without doing the same kind of work? God is more concerned with the process of transformation than He is with the products of repetition. Let me say that again, because you missed it. God is more concerned with the process of transformation than He is with the products of repetition. In other words, God is not interested in duplicating the same disciples, but He's always interested in making disciples. And the way that disciples are made always involves obvious, intentional, accessible steps to follow Jesus. Steps like worshiping faithfully, spending time with Jesus daily, connecting in community regularly, serving others unselfishly, giving generously, telling your faith story frequently. All those steps are vital to following Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Because here's what I know. No one drifts into discipleship. No one accidentally begins to follow Jesus and no one stumbles into a life of faithfulness. That's at the heart of what this series is about. But we begin today with the most important and basic step of all, the first step, the I have decided to follow Jesus step. To help us understand this, I want us to look at the opening of the gospel according to Mark chapter 1 Pick it up in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word follow is a very strong, robust word in its biblical setting. Today, the word follow has lost uh, much of its punch primarily because of how it's used on social media. To say you follow someone on Twitter or Instagram or you're following someone on Facebook really doesn't mean much. Uh, it's another way of saying I read what that person posts. Sometimes I even like what that person posts. Sometimes I don't. And that's about as far as we take the word follow today. You don't even have to know the person to follow them. But in Jesus' day, following someone, particularly a rabbi, meant something much more intentional and intense. When it says that these two sets of fishermen brothers followed Jesus, in both cases, the word that precedes their following is the word left. Look again at verse 18. At once they left their nets and followed him. And again in verse 20. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Something or someone was left behind in order to follow Jesus ahead. 
In other words, what they had always known as normal was no more. Following Jesus became their new normal. So today in this introductory message to this new series, before we talk about any other steps of what a follower of Jesus looks, sounds, and acts like, I have just one simple question I'd like you to consider. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, chances are pretty good that many of you just kind of mentally skipped right over that question. You may have heard it or read it, but I doubt it carried much weight or had any real impact. Because you're so familiar with it, you tend to dismiss it. But would you take a look at this question one more time? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Kyle Eidelman is a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, and the author of a compelling book that came out several years ago titled Not a Fan. And Pastor Eidelman says there's basically two different groups of people and two different responses with respect to that question, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Group number one would be the Jesus fish on the back of my car group. Or here in Central Florida, we could say the Z88.3 safe for the little ears bumper sticker crowd. You're serious enough about your faith that you put a Christian sticker or symbol on your car. Asking you the question, are you a follower of Jesus Christ, is like walking into a fraternity house in Gainesville and asking who cheers for the Gators. It's an important question, but you're so sure of your answer that your mind quickly dismisses it. You've already dealt with it. You've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, display the bumper sticker. But before you mentally move on too quickly, let me clarify what I am not asking you. I'm not asking the following. Do you go to church? Are your parents or grandparents Christian? Did you raise your hand at the end of a sermon one time to accept Jesus do you own three or more Bibles? Have you appeared in a church directory? Did you grow up going to vacation Bible school or church camp? Is your ringtone a worship song? When you pray, are you able to utilize five or more synonyms for God? Did you get a purpose-driven life in 40 days or less? And do you say bless their heart before speaking badly about someone? I'm not asking that. Here's the point. Many of us are quick to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not sure we really understand what we're saying. If you've just assumed that you're a follower of Jesus, I pray this message will either confirm that confidence or convict you to reevaluate your relationship with Jesus. But Pastor Eidelman says group two would be those who say, why is there a fish on the back of my friend's car? If you're someone in this group and you see a question like, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You also tend to dismiss it and mentally check out, but for other reasons. It's not that you're against the question or even offended by it. It's just that it doesn't seem relevant to you. Unlike the first group who think they've already answered the question and don't need to wrestle with it, you don't think the question is worth wrestling with. You mean no offense. You're just not into it. It doesn't bother you that some people choose to follow Jesus. It's their life after all. But it's just not your thing. It's, it's kind of like your friends who are so into Star Wars that they can speak and understand the many insider-oriented galactic languages in all the films. I mean, if that's what they're into, good for them. But you don't get the appeal, and frankly, it seems a little weird to you. Listen, I'm not here to sell you Jesus today. 
I'm not going to try to talk you into following Jesus by presenting the benefits of the Christian faith and none of the cost. Because here's the thing, and listen, don't tell the people in group one, I told you this. Many of them assume they are followers of Jesus, but the truth is they only signed up to change their eternity. They didn't know Jesus wants to change their life. They think God's greatest concern is to take them to heaven after they die. When the truth is God's greatest desire is to get heaven in them before they die. The gospel is not about a final relocation plan. It's about an ongoing transformation process. It's not about where God wants to take you to later. It's about what God wants to do in you right now. But again, don't tell them I said that. So where do you start in figuring out if you are really a follower of Jesus? Well, we need to have a little DTR, define the relationship, talk. Dating couples understand the, this DTR concept. And, and it works this way usually. When a young man and young woman have been hanging out together for a while, one of them will eventually say, we need to talk. Scary words to a lot of guys when they hear their girlfriend say that. I need to know where this relationship is going, someone will say. Is this the real deal? Are you the one for me? What comes next in this relationship? We need to DTR, define the relationship. DTR moments can be awkward and uncomfortable, but eventually every healthy relationship reaches a point when the DTR talk is needed. Is this Casual or are we committed? Have things moved past infatuation and admiration towards deeper devotion and dedication? Kyle Adelman writes, It may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if they were to honestly define the relationship they have with Him, I'm not sure it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It seems to me, Adelman writes, that there's a more suitable word to describe them. They are not followers of Jesus. They are fans of Jesus. Jesus. And the most basic definition of a fan in the dictionary is an enthusiastic admirer. There's a big difference between being an admirer and a follower. An admirer is impressed. A follower is devoted. An admirer applauds. A follower surrenders. A lot of people admired Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his civil rights leadership. Some marched with him. Not many went to jail with him. Not many got their houses bombed like he did. A lot of people admired Mother Teresa. Not many people followed her to live among the destitute and dying in India. Another pastor from Louisville named Tyler McKenzie wrote this. Everybody likes talking about love tweeting about compassion, and virtue signaling about justice. Not everyone likes the inconvenience, time, and consistency it takes to do it. It's socially advantageous and laudable in our culture to seem humanitarian, to have a cause. But do we like the idea of love more than the act? As a pastor, he writes, I know a compassionate church is made through sweaty brows, dirty hands, achy backs, weekly commitments, and inconvenienced schedules. We have to put our money and our muscle where our mouth is. Well said, Pastor McKenzie. So, which are you? A fan or a follower? 
And how did you arrive at that conclusion? Family heritage, biblical knowledge, religious rituals, biased comparisons? Is your faith more about honoring your heritage than it is about surrendering your heart? Have you been raised in church, but not in Christ? Thankfully, the Gospels record several examples of people having the DTR talk with Jesus. And there's one DTR conversation I want us to zero in as we wrap up today. We read about this in the Gospel according to John. Jesus met with one of his fans named Nicodemus. But Nicodemus wasn't just any fan. He was a noted member of the ruling religious elite in Israel, a group called the Sanhedrin, the group that would ultimately decide whether Jesus should live or die. In John chapter 3, we read about his DTR moment with Jesus. The story begins by noting the time of day that it was when Nicodemus approached Jesus, and the scripture says he came to Jesus at night. Hence the origin of the phrase, Nick at night. Why are you laughing? You don't know that's not true. It would be easy to overlook this detail and dismiss it as insignificant. But ask yourself, why would an important, well-known religious ruler come to Jesus at night? He had plenty of opportunities to, during the day. Jesus was constantly teaching in public places where it would have been quite convenient for Nicodemus to talk with him for a few moments. In fact, given his position and status as a religious leader, the other people would have quickly stepped aside out of his way for Nicodemus to have the time and attention of Jesus. But John the writer says he came to Jesus at night, at night when no one would see him. At night, he would avoid awkward questions from his peers. At night, he could spend time with Jesus without anyone knowing. If he could speak with Jesus at night without anyone else around, maybe he could begin a relationship with Jesus without anyone else noticing. He could talk to Jesus at night and quietly make a decision and accept Jesus in his heart and privately believe in Jesus. That way it wouldn't disrupt his comfortable and established life. That sounds like a lot of fans I know. Fans are happy to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't require any significant changes or have negative implications. But here's the reality that Jesus is about to drop on Nicodemus. There is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs something. In fact, I've got a homework assignment for you. Here's a question. Where in the Bible did God ever give someone an easy job? Well, when did God ever interrupt someone's life and say to them, I have an important assignment that I'm going to give you, but it's not going to be very hard, and it's not going to take up too much of your time. In fact, you'll be back to your old life in no time at all. Get back with me on your answer, but I can already tell you what it will be. He never does. Why? There is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. For Nicodemus, following Jesus could cost him a powerful position. It could cost him the respect of his co-workers. It could very well cost him his source of income and livelihood. It could cost him friendships, and it would likely cost him some family relationships. And this brings up a very telling question for most fans. Has following Jesus cost you anything ever? I don't mean for that to be one of those 
preacher rhetorical questions where you nod and say, ah, oh, that's a really good point, Pastor. Take a moment and give this some serious thought. How has following Jesus interfered with your life? You see, most of us don't mind Jesus making some minor tweaks in our lives, but Jesus doesn't just want to tweak our lives. Jesus wants to transform our lives. And Jesus is about to make that crystal clear to Nicodemus. Nicodemus begins his conversation with Jesus by making it clear he has decided Jesus really is from God. And considering his background and the crowd that he hangs around with, that was a huge step in his way of thinking. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He obviously had come to a point of belief that Jesus is from God. And that's a good place to start. But where do we go from there? Well, Jesus doesn't make small talk and he doesn't mince words. He gets right to the heart of what Nicodemus really needs to experience. He tells Nicodemus in verse 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That would have been hard for this religious leader to hear. I mean, this guy had memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, when he was a boy. He had spent his adult life building an impressive religious resume. But Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus that his, his righteous acts and religious rituals are not the spiritual metrics the kingdom of God uses. Nicodemus must humble himself and be born again into a whole new way of life. Jesus goes on to tell him he must be born of water and spirit, which many scholars think is a, double, is a reference to the double-sided meaning of Christian baptism, which is a submersion in water that symbolizes an immersion in the spirit. Nicodemus had made a decision about Jesus but that's not the same as following him. Jesus would not accept a relationship with Nicodemus where he merely accepted him. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to follow him. You see, Jesus doesn't just want Nick at night. He wants Nick all the time. So let me ask you this question. Are you believing that or are you believing in Jesus? Let me clarify we tend to define belief as the acceptance of something real or true, but we can believe something is real and true and never rely on it for a single moment. Believing that suggests something is possible. Believing in surrenders to someone personally. Believing that says that a plane could fly safely from here to New York. Believing in buys a ticket, takes a seat, and buckles up. Believing that says insulin can help a diabetic. Believing in regularly takes the pill or injection. Believing that says she seems like a woman you could spend your life with. Believing in buys the ring, pops the question, and ultimately walks down the aisle. Christian faith is more than just an intellectual acceptance or heartfelt acknowledgement of propositional truth. It is a commitment to follow an actual person. And following someone by definition requires more than mere acknowledgement. It calls for actual movement. 
Jesus is looking for more than words of belief. He's looking to see how those words are lived out in your life. When we decide to believe that Jesus without making a commitment to believe in Jesus by actually following Him, then we become nothing more than fans or admirers. So in case someone left it out or forgot to mention it when they explained what it meant to be a Christian to you, let me be clear. There is no forgiveness without repentance. There's no salvation without surrender. There's no resurrection without a cross. There's no believing without following. This nighttime meeting ends. And we're really not told at this point what Nicodemus does with his new revelation from Jesus about being born again. But as it turns out, this isn't the last we read of Nicodemus in the gospel record. The next time we meet up with him is found in the same gospel, Gospel of John, chapter 7. The popularity at this point of Jesus has grown immensely, and so has the religious leaders' jealousy and envy of him. We read that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious elite of which Nicodemus was a member, was assembled hoping to find a reason to silence Jesus once and for all. You see, part of the role of the ruling council was to judge false prophets. They were looking to drum up some kind of accusation or charge that would indict Jesus as a false teacher. Nicodemus is part of this 72-member group. He's sitting among his peers as they conspire to bring Jesus down. Nicodemus truly believes Jesus is from God, but would he say anything? Would his belief translate into any kind of commitment? I'm sure he sat there probably hoping someone else would say something in defense of Jesus, and maybe he could chime in with them. Surely he wasn't the only one who believed. His mind's probably racing with what it's going to cost him if he goes public with his conviction. Then we read in verse 51 that Nicodemus actually speaks out in Jesus' defense. John 7, verse 51. Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? Though he stops short of saying what he fully believes, he does take somewhat of a risk here when he publicly speaks up on behalf of Jesus. This is no longer a private internal conversation about believing that. He's moving toward believing in. He allows what he believes in to interfere with his work, his relationships, and possibly his financial future. In that moment, he stops just being a fan, and he begins the journey of following. After he speaks out in defense of Jesus, we read in verse 52, the rest of the Sanhedrin responded this way, Are you from Galilee too? I know that doesn't seem very harsh to us, but they're clearly trying to embarrass Nicodemus for associating with Jesus. Galilee was a sparsely populated, mostly rural region well north of the city of Jerusalem. Country bumpkin Galileans were looked down upon by religious elitist Jerusalem city dwellers. That's like an Ivy School grad looking down on a graduate of an SEC school. The Sanhedrin laughed at Jesus because of where he was from. And now they use it to attack Nicodemus. It was meant to be a shot at his ego and a threat to his religious reputation that he'd worked so hard to establish. This was a reality check for Nicodemus. I've discovered there's almost always a moment like this for followers of Jesus. They're put in a position where they have to decide, am I going to be a fan 
or I'm going to be a follower. Any hope that Nicodemus could follow Jesus without it interfering with, it, with his life was quickly shut down with that one question. Are you from Galilee too? So is that the end of Nicodemus? Did he just shrink back and never say anything else and not be heard from again? Well, as it turns out, at the end of John's gospel, there's one more brief reference to Nicodemus that definitively answers the question if Nicodemus was merely a fan or a follower of Jesus. In John chapter 19, we read that what the religious leaders so desperately wanted has now happened. Jesus Christ has been crucified and his lifeless body is being prepared for burial. A man named Joseph of Arimathea has asked for the body of Jesus to be buried in his family's private tomb. That usually did not happen to criminals executed by the state. Their corpses were just thrown into a common grave altogether. Up to this point, we've never heard of Joseph of Arimathea, suggesting that perhaps he himself had been a secret admirer of Jesus. But he didn't want Jesus' body just to be thrown into a common grave. And so he steps forward. And then we read these fascinating words that help us close the loop on Nicodemus' amazing faith journey. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So there's no confusing. This is the same Nicodemus. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes would have been an extremely expensive and costly gesture to use in embalming a body. But it would cost him more than just money. There was no longer any concern of his hiding his affection for Jesus. In fact, when Jesus' closest disciples, who'd followed him the longest, had abandoned him or were hiding out in fear of their lives, Nicodemus steps forward and makes this compassionate and courageous gesture of affection and devotion. Nicodemus finally and fully moves from the night to the light. Things had moved past words of belief that he was no longer a secret admirer. He wasn't even just an enthusiastic admirer. He had become a follower. He went all in on Jesus at a time when everybody else ran out. I don't know about you, but I would rather be a part of a faith community where the call of wholehearted devotion to Jesus is proclaimed clearly even if it shrinks down to only a few than to be part of a big crowd of thousands who are content to drift along as admirers of Jesus without ever being challenged to full devotion. So I'm going to ask you one more time. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Following means taking intentional steps. And the most important one is the first step. So I'm going to ask you right now, would you bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment as we close? I want to give you a few moments to talk with God and search your heart. I know a lot of you have already committed your life to Jesus. And God may be raising some issues in your own heart right now that you really need to pray about. So go ahead and do that. But I want to speak to those of you who've never clearly committed your life to Jesus. You've never confessed your sin and repented and wholly devoted your life to Christ. 
I want to give you a chance to make that commitment now and to express it briefly. Maybe by saying something like this, God, I'm coming out of the crowd. I'm crossing the line from fan to follower. No more playing games. No more half measures. I'm stepping out of the night and into your light. I'm fully devoting my life to following Jesus, and I'm expressing that to you right now. If that's your decision, if that's your intent, I want to invite you right now to let us know by going to this link, journeychristian.com slash next steps. Do it right now because I want to tell you something else. Nobody drifts into discipleship. No one accidentally begins to follow Jesus. No one stumbles into a life of faithfulness, but it all starts with the first step. I urge you to take it today and let us walk with you as you do. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.